Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Improv isn't just for comedy. If there are superfoods like blueberries that are good for your health, improv may just be a super skill that has implications and applications that are also good for your health. No joke, these skills are highly learnable and can literally help you become a better person. They can make you a better collaborator in marriage, parenthood, business, music, and everywhere in life. Many Fortune 500 companies, including Clorox, have been able to boost their bottom line by using the skills they've implemented from improv. I had the pleasure of speaking with Kelly Leonard, the Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development of Second City in Chicago, the oldest continuing operating improv center in the world. The list of graduates who have come from Second City is utterly astounding. If you are a fan of any of these people, you can thank Second City. Amy Poehler, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Tina Fey, Tim Meadows, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Joan Rivers, Jordan Peele, Alan Alda, John Belushi, Stephen Colbert, Cecily Strong, and so many others. All of them developed their chops under the same roof where my guest has worked for 35 years. Kelly is the author of an excellent book on improv called Yes And, How Improvisation Reverses No-But Thinking and Improves Creativity and Collaboration Lessons from the Second City. I love the book, and so did a fella by the name of Stephen Colbert, who said the book is for anyone looking to be more creative in their work and in their life. Other similar praise came from Dan Pink and Vanity Fair. In this episode, you will hear how improv works and why you should consider developing these skills. You may even find yourself bringing people like Kelly to your workplace to help improve performance and employee morale through the types of play that only improv can bring. So listen in as Kelly and I talk about why you need to learn improv, the super skill in life. Kelly Leonard, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. Adam, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted. I loved your book so much. And you have made the work itself of improv so easily accessible to the masses. And the vast applications of improv mm-hmm. itself, where it, which really resonated with me. I told you offline, I did two years of it with Sue Walden in San Francisco. It has informed me as a father, as a therapist, as a presenter. And really, even if I'm just checking out of Walgreens, somehow improv comes online. Because <laughs> I like to kibitz with the clerk as I'm leaving and just you know give a little smile. I don't know if that lands with you. Oh, I mean, honestly, the last hour before getting into my office with like two minutes to go to call you was an entire act of improvisation. My bosses triple booked on something. And so they had guests who flown in. Like, Kelly, can you give them a quick tour? I gave them a tour. And of course, my bosses were not done with whatever they were doing. So then had a bit of a conversation. And then turns out they're hungry and they promised to be fed. 
had to go get them salads, <laughs> had to go realize that we didn't have any waters, had to communicate this with all these different people, knowing I had to be on this call and also just like being like, all right, what's my backup? I could probably go upstairs and get someone else to run down here if not. And just all the times are like not getting upset, not getting blame ridden or whatever it is, being completely curious and in the moment. And part of that was like, why am I fetching salads? I have worked here way too long to be doing that. <laughs> or Kelly Lynn could realize I had to go down to the Roots restaurant downstairs where they happen to have the Cubs game on. I just saw Suzuki hit three run double and the Cubs went up three nothing in the second. So this and the guy brought me a water. Like this is all good. This is all good. It's all good. Like everything was sort of meant to be. I made it here on time. People got fed. The Cubs are winning. The sun's out. And I think the thing about improvisation is when you go into your very first class, it is so much about ridding fear and judgment and all that icky stuff that gets in the way of us enjoying our lives, enjoying each other, about making things together, all those things. It, it makes you sort of strip those away to be in the moment, as, as you mentioned, sort of fiercely in the moment with whatever is around you. And man, like that is just a better way to live. Set aside the success and all those other things it can bring you. It's just moment to moment, a better way to live your life. Yeah. And the word is vitality. And I'm thinking about just the fact that each of us has death on the horizon. It's a horribly morbid statement, but it's true. true. And it's true. to be alive is really what we're looking for while we're alive. We want to be alive yes. while we're alive. And it seems like one of the best insurance policies is the skills that are endorsed by improv. Yeah. And one of the ways that I can really scare one of my heady clients, perhaps an introverted client, perhaps somebody who doesn't really like to think on his feet, somebody who might give a PowerPoint and need a PowerPoint in order to give a presentation with lots and lots of words on each slide. And they do the thing hands behind the back, they read the slide and they go to the next slide. One of the ways I can almost certainly scare my client to say, you know what you need? I would prescribe improv. Yeah. And those who have done it have done it to great success and have found it to be the kind of exposure that they've needed and such a safe atmosphere. And I was wondering if you could tell the audience what improv is and what it is not, because so many people think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to be like Mike Myers. I'm going to be funny on the right. fly. I'm, I'm not Robin Williams or Tina Fey. Yeah. So we're not necessarily, well, we're not. The beginning courses of the Second City, when you sign up for improv class, we're not teaching you comedy. You'll discover things that are humorous about yourself and about others. Their comedy will result, but that really comes out of a lot of truth. And that is where improv takes you is to sort of live inside the reality of where you are right now. We have a, a saying in our work, you need to play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. Here's an easy way to understand why we're talking the way we're talking about improv. The woman whose exercises are the basis of all our work is a woman named Viola Spolin, who is a social worker at Jane Addams Hull House on the south side of Chicago in the 20s and 30s. And her job through the WPA project was to better assimilate immigrant children and neighborhood children into her care. And these kids didn't always share language. So she created all these exercises, many of which were in silence or, or gibberish, so that the kids could play and empathize and communicate. And they found ways to do this. And it was immensely gratifying. And her son, Paul Sills, who's studying at the University of Chicago, loved these games. And he taught them to his friends, Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Alan Arkin, Barbara Harris, among others. They formed the first improvisational theater in America called the Compass Players in 1955. And that morphs into the Second City in 1959. So the basis of the work 
all the education part of it that everyone was trained in from Nichols and May to Colbert and Fay and Polar and Myers and all those people are these games, these pro-social games that teach us how to listen better, how to collaborate better, how to lead, how to follow. And they also had the benefit of being an incredible tool for making something out of nothing. And that's what improv is. It's simply making something out of nothing. We aren't handed scripts, just like in life, for the most part. We're not handed scripts. And even when we are, those scripts are going to be forced to change because we're constantly navigating complexity and change and our need to be agile and resilient, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day, continually. So improvisers are well-trained in how to adapt and also to build. And the whole yes and concept which was the title of my book and and the sort of a forming principle around improvisation is that our default position as human beings and behavioral economics teaches us this, that our default position is to say no or do nothing. Much easier to sit on the couch than go out. And we've all faced this at work. We've all been in brainstorming sessions where you bring up an idea and someone says no, and then suddenly that you or that person is shut down the rest of the time because they don't want to offer up. They don't want to do that. And the the idea, yes, and it's like, hey, let your idea of a bad idea live for a little bit. What's the harm? And in fact, what you are going to discover is that someone else's bad idea matched with another person's bad idea can sometimes be an awesome idea. And we know this at Second City because when we are creating our shows over a 10 to 12 week period, the first four weeks are curious and we want as many ideas as possible. Give me your terrible concepts. I want to see all your terrible characters. And what we know is that there's going to be some gold there. Sooner, may come up later. I was talking to a Stanford professor, Bob Sutton, who's done some studies on this. And Sutton's work shows us that, honestly, to get to the good idea, you normally need around 2,000 ideas. Now, people might be stunned by that until they understand that human beings generally have around 60,000 ideas in their head a day. It's absolutely incredible. Right? And a lot of those are recurring. (laughs) That's a problem. (laughs) So a lot of them are things that we are like, because we navigate towards the negative. Improv also teaches you to sort of stare into that abyss to sap the strength out of those worries and those fears because there is no way to be creative when you're in judgment of self or judgment of others. And improvisation is all about practice and in, in, in ceasing that judgment of self and judgment of others to get to an abundant amount of ideas that you can have as part of your palette moving forward when you're improvising. Del Close says, try not to invent, try to remember. Love that. You've got this stuff. It's already there. Just the question is bringing it out, bringing it forth, finding the prompts to bring it forth. And a bad idea is just a tweak away from a good idea. And the number of ideas generated informs the quality of ideas. The quantity actually is the prerequisite to quality. And that's that's corroborated by Jeremy Utley, who's the dean of Stanford Design, who came on my podcast and informed me of this. And I had to get my kids to gather around. You have to generate lots and lots of ideas. And you speak about the rut of like, yes, sure, we have many, many thousands of thoughts per day. Most of them are pretty much the same thoughts that we had yesterday. And by mixing things up, getting into improv, the aliveness, we may have a different prompt. We may actually have different ideas than we had yesterday as a result of engaging in the novelty of improv. And I think that's super important. You also speak to something else, though. I love the idea of cultivating agency through improv, because basically, if nothing else, Improv makes us all into James Bonds or Jeanette Bonds in certain ways so that we can 
go out in the world and know that we are ready to face whatever. We've got what it takes. Agency, by the way, for the listeners who aren't familiar with the term, and you were smiling tonight, and I know you are, is the idea, the knowledge that I can. It's not based on some false information like Stuart Smalley of I'm good enough, smart enough, but it's actually, I have evidence that I can do this. That's right. I remember when COVID turned the world upside down and my wife, Anne, and I were working from home and I was trying to help convert all of our corporate workshops that were coming up into sort of virtual experiences. And I got a call from a friend of mine who used to help run exec ed at Yale when she was now at a soft drink company. And she was like, man, do you have anything on sort of resilience and agency that you could do with our people that would work in this virtual format? And I said yes before I knew that we did. Uh, and, <laughs> and then consulted the brains and the outfit, my wife. And Anne actually gave me an exercise that, and anyone can do this, and it works beautifully live or, or virtual, but it's an exercise that she titled Wish. And you have everyone get a piece of paper and a pen, and they draw three columns. And the first column, they write down a thing they wish that they could do that they can't do. And in the case, this was during COVID, and mine was like, I live in Chicago, and I wanted to swim in salt water. It wasn't going to happen. And it would have happened if I had been able to go on the vacation I wanted to go on. And in the second column, I write down the emotion I think I'd feel if I was granted that wish. And I was like refreshed and relaxed, all out of sense of awe. And then in the third column, you write down something you can do right now to experience that emotion that you just wrote down. And I was like, oh, I could go for a run. I could splash water on my face. It's beautiful outside. I could go like for a walk in the woods, those things. And the idea is that you have no agency over the things that are happening to you, but you have agency over how you're going to emotionally respond to them. I love that so much. Yeah, I'm sorry. So this idea, and it's all over improv, which is like, it's not that we're saying that everything's great and things don't suck and they they, because they frequently always do but the thing that we have power over is how we respond and so you know this idea that we have in our work which is replacing blame with curiosity just like don't need to live inside a blame game here if i just sort of use my curious self to experience the thing i'm experiencing right now i'm a bit detached but not in the sort of like negative hiding way, just in a way of like, huh, what's actually work going on here? And giving yourself that beat, giving yourself the beat of like, okay, I'm not going to move to anger or pity or jealousy or whatever it is. I'm just going to be curious about what's happening. That beat is so powerful. So many of our exercises, which involve conversations between people, but with these rules around them, many of them are really about embracing the silences that can happen between people that we're all afraid to happen because we think that people are going to like judge us or think that we're not paying attention. It's like, are you kidding me? When someone is listening to me and they take a beat and they're silent for a second because they're really considering, I feel so seen and that is the best feeling in the world. But for some reason, our human brains, when it comes to ourselves doing that, feel like, no, 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 they're not going to see it that way. And this is why our work lines up so well with the work that you see in the behavioral science community, which is all about like, what are the many ways in which we're not understanding the conversation we're having right now or the ways we could misunderstand or the biases that we walk into these conversations with? And if we can mine those, that's great for comedy. And it's also great for a more successful interaction, say at work or in the home. I'm going to take a beat and take that in. (laughs) Based on that cue, that is really, really good. And I have so many thoughts. 
that as not surprisingly that you're stirring up. The first thing is when you were asked that question about do you have a resiliency program, you weren't sure if you did, but you started with yes, which yeah. flies in the face of something you said earlier, which was mm-hmm. our default is to say no and to stay safe. Yeah. And that comes neurophysiologically from the negativity bias that you know only too well that it's safer mm-hmm. to keep the status quo lest we go into the unknown. The, the known, even if it's crap, is safer than the unknown, even if it's amazing. Because we go with the devil you know. And instead, you decided to just double down and say yes and yes and and figure it out. So even, I mean, just from a meta perspective, this was improv in and of itself. I think about that moment in parenthood when Steve Martin realizes that his kid's birthday party is about to be ruined because Cowboy Bill isn't going to show up. And he just looks at his son and says, Cowboy Bill is coming. And you can see he's trying to formulate how to bring out Cowboy Bill at some point. And lo and behold, he becomes Cowboy Bill over time. And it works like a charm. He summons up his agency. He sums up his creativity and just goes with what's... He, he just used something. He was playing the scene that he was in, not the scene that he wanted to be in. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I love that phrase. Something else you said is really spot on and conforms with current scientific research on happiness. And that is, we are all endowed with a genetic set point towards happiness. 50% of our happiness is based on that genetic set point. And some of us woke up on the happy side of the bed. Some of us woke on the grumpy side of the bed. And 40% is our intentional efforts. And only 10% is our actual circumstances. Mm -hmm. So that 40% is what you dialed into during COVID and came up with a really brilliant rubric to figure it out so that you could be happier during a time when you were somewhat shackled. Yeah. I mean, that was, if there was any test of our work, it was going to be in that moment. And because we shut down the theater, which is our primary source of income here, what we were able to pivot to was the virtual classrooms and the virtual corporate events and some television projects and some other things that were able to happen. And and then we also got sold in, in that time. So it was, there was a, a lot going on. We were also, I mean, there was a point where Second City, I think pre-COVID had something like 600-something employees, and we were down to 39. And here's the thing, too. I remember having a phone call with my relatively new boss at the time and sort of saying to her, like, kind of expecting the call anytime that this is it. She started laughing. She goes, what are you talking about? We've already decided you're the last employee. And it made some sense with regard to I had the most tenure, did the most different jobs. But if I, who logically would be probably the last off the ship, was that worried about my job, just imagine what every other human was worried about who worked at Second City. And it was mind-blowing for me and became a testament to this idea, which is it doesn't matter that we all understand these ideas that we're well-read and we're we're reading the papers and the evidence and keeping up with the journals and all that does not matter. If we are not finding a way to embody the learning, which usually involves some sort of practice, improv being one of them, and there are other practices, but if we're not sort of embodying those ideas and then learning how to sort of incorporate them into our day-to-day life, they're meaningless. And, And what's hilarious, when I did the shift from producing on stage to primarily focusing on improv off stage and these other applied environments. I quickly became acquainted with the term me search, realizing that many of our friends in academia 
end up studying the thing that they're obsessed about themselves. Not the happiest bunch. That's right. Pessimistic and depressive, generally. Generally. Hello, I'm one of them. The the father of positive psychology, not the most positive person I've ever met. The you're talking about? You got it. He he admits to being both of those things. Exactly. And it's not not that they don't. They know it. So naturally gravitate towards these things. But, But again, the book learning, which is important, only takes you so far. How am I bringing this in to my day-to-day? And I know this is parent. So when my kids were little, and I wrote this book, Yes, And, and it did really well, just imagine the horror of being a parent who's known for saying yes and when you're parenting. Because as a parent, like no is the go-to. It is the 97% thing that you say as a parent. Not correctly. I'm not saying that's correct. And I remember this one particular, our daughter Nora, wanted a raise in her allowance. And uh-huh. like she had just gotten one. It was like, there was no like, <laughs> like seven, I don't know. Dad, I've been receiving allowance for two weeks. I think I'm due. I think I'm due because she's going to kill me if I say no. So I'm like, yes. And if you can basically chart out why, what's the reason? Why do you deserve this? We will consider it. Absolutely. And <laughs> kind of left it. And then that night, Ann and I, my wife and I are getting ready for bed. And Nora comes in and she has got like one of my suit coats on and one of my ties sort of crudely tied. And she has a PowerPoint presentation, which is a bunch of construction paper with drawings of grass. And she did a whole presentation. It was so funny. And we're both comedy parents. Like we're like, my wife's a comedy professor, but we both worked 60 years. It killed. It was so good. Mike, you went to work. She sold us. She sold it. She got 25 cent raise. And she should because you just invented this thing. What do you want for your children but a sense of agency and joy and play and all those factors were happening? And so, like, you can yes and to great effect. Now, like, yes and doesn't go on forever. When I talked about the second seed process being 10 to 12 weeks and the first four weeks being yes and, yeah, that's right. Because the next six to eight weeks are ruthless no's. <laughs> they are editing. We call it killing your babies. Not the best term, but that's what we call it in common. Right. You just do that. But the reason that works is because everyone, everyone has had all their ideas yes and yes and for the first four weeks. So when you set up that kind of environment where it's like, oh, no, no, we all have our hands in this. We've all contributed. And now it's time to like boil it down and get it to be great. And that requires a lot of ruthless editing and, and work and skill. That is the domain of the professional comedian. Anyone can yes and. Anyone can be creative. That's in that space of play to innovate is when you take all of that sort of fun, broad work and then have to turn it into something that someone wants to pay money for. And that's a different thing. And so so a lot of our work is about at first part, because we know that basically the minute you get out of preschool, your creativity is being killed out of you grade after grade after grade after job after job. I mean, it's like a cliff that we fall off of. The studies show that we start to regain just about that time we're going to retire. And that's not okay. That's not good. That's not healthy. That's not flourishing. And it doesn't mean that we need to live this unstructured existence. It's that, no, like play is a really vital part of learning and growing and expression. And all these things can be married together in a really lovely way. We do a lot of corporate work at Second City. It's a big part of our business. At times, we've been like, hey, there's good research around play. So let's tell people we're selling them play. Corporate America doesn't want to buy play. If we call play, 
You can mark it down. It's when we tell happening. them it's not happening, but if we say improvisation, like, oh, tell me more. And because they see that as some sort of valuable skill, but they don't see play as a valuable skill. They're wrong. Play is really important, but still it's something of a slur in corporate America. How do you package it? You know, we're like, we're experts in improvisation. Does your, do you have teams who work together who need to create things? We're experts in that. It involves teamwork, agility, resilience, communication, storytelling, all these different sort of rubrics. What we don't do is what a lot of other thought leaders, I'm going to use air quotes, thought leaders do. So like a thing like design thinking, and I love the folks at IDEO, and I think design thinking is is fantastic. Once they try to commodify design thinking, suddenly anyone with a post-it and a hipster haircut is out there doing design thinking and Six Sigma or whatever. All these things have value. But not any one of them is the thing. Just like improv isn't the thing. What you want to do is have a toolbox with a lot of different tools to then use should a certain moment arrive. And if you need new tools, there are ways of going out and finding those things. So improvisation is just a part of that. It's a part of all of that because it's primarily rooted in human behavior. And we're talking about working with humans, not robots. But humans do need to work with robots. Uh, so, but the thing that they will need most when working with robots is the most human of skills, which are things like storytelling and problem solving, irony. Robots are good improvisers. That's right. So let's talk about that for a minute, because a lot of people are freaking out appropriately, I think, yeah. given the ambiguity of the future, the relevance of things like chat GBT and more, and these will grow and grow. I would contend, and I'm guessing you would agree, but let's hear what you have to yep. say, that improv falls into a subset of skills that will help us differentiate ourselves, as you just said, from the robots and make us not an expendable entity, make us necessary. But let's talk about that. What role do you think improv will play on the future of work? So I get asked to speak at a lot of future of work conferences. And so I'm always looking up, like, what's the World Economic Forum saying this year about the future of work? Skills. And those are always those things I just talked about. They are problem-solving, storytelling, resilience, agency, all the stuff that we've talked about. That is what, and those are uniquely human skills because the rote work, like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, let's maybe probably 15, it's going to say coding. But now these machines can do the coding. But what they can't do is make the code into a poem or make the code into a commercial or the expression that then a human being is going to sort of respond to. So part of when I'm talking at future of work conferences is trying to sort of convince people, there's a lot of what I do, which is HR, which used to be the punchline of every joke in any sort of corporate comedy context you would ever have. It's like, send it to HR, you know, it's it's like, whatever. HR is going to be the most important division in your company because it is the ability to tap the greatest performance out of your humans is what's going to separate everything. I'm curious what your experience is. My experience right now, coming out of COVID, working at a live entertainment venue in a industry, and I don't know how much of your audience has seen this, but the theatrical industry in North America, America and Canada, is distressed, to say the least. Major theaters are, are cutting, theaters are closing left and right. We're doing well, and I think that's in part because we're a comedy theater and we have other things that allow us to be successful. I'm taking out a lot of this is 
We have a lot of relearning to do about what it means to frame an experience of attending for our audiences to give them joy. I mean, I go to a lot of sports and music and those houses are sold out. And there is a palpable sense of joy and excitement in the framing of the events. And everyone knows how to dress. Everyone knows how to sort of behave and what the cues are. One of the problems that we've done in in theater in, in general is we've made it very elite. And we've also, people are really snooty a lot of the time. It's when like the Apple stores first open, you're like, what is this magic? And the magic was not the devices. The magic was how kind and nice the people were when you walked in. Because we're all like, this is not the way people are in stores. That's and, exactly right. Right? And I think this is going to be the thing now when we have some running around for salads and stuff that I had to do earlier today. is <laughs> because our restaurant partners from our Toronto location are visiting our Chicago location. And we just got in this interesting conversation. I've talked to our restaurant partners here in Chicago, and they inform me that Friday nights are now dead. So city of Chicago, because people aren't going into the office on Fridays anymore. And so I'm what like, they would oh. do is they would congregate afterward and go mm-hmm. see. Yeah. Busiest night, Wednesday. Because that's the last night of the week. It's last night or middle or maybe Thursday. They might be there too. But it's like Wednesday. Wednesday is suddenly, and I'm just like, oh my God. Like, And they're like, oh no, that's the same up in Toronto. And I'm like, this is fascinating. So we're now living through, and I told them this. When I started here in 1988, the weekday shows, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday show started at 9 p.m. I'm in bed at 9 p.m. now. And it's now 7.30. But I mean, like, and these may seem little, but they're not. They are the way the world behaves. And when I say the world, the way human beings in the world behaves changes due to a variety of inputs and outputs and all these things. And part of what really smart people are doing is they're paying sort of fierce attention to what's going on now, but they also have available to them what happened in the past and they're flying forward. So they're also, I think it was Keith Johnston who who uh, has wonderful, I'm going to blow the quote, but it's something about walking backwards with your eyes moving forward. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen in the future and all you have is what happened behind you. So this idea of like, how do I utilize all of that family to sort of imagine myself moving forward? And we're terribly bad at predictions, as the science tells us. And this is experts hate this, but I mean, you've seen these studies, right? Where they're like, experts are nowhere near better than like mere people off the street in deciding like who's going to win an election or a ball game. It's so random. Or in some cases, an octopus or a squid. Yes, Yes, exactly. So I think the idea of, okay, maybe we're all on way more equal footing. And what I need to do is make sure that I have my ensemble, my team, my, my people who trust me and I trust them. So I've got now the wisdom of crowds working in my favor. I am not suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. I am not assuming a certain amount of expertise because, I mean, I'm smart about some stuff. But I mean, honestly, when I do the interviews and people talk about my work and it's like, I feel great other than this. It's, it's so much of it is not my work. And I just need um, to weigh in, folks, yeah. that Dunning-Kruger is overestimating your actual skill <laughs> kind of, I call it the Homer Simpson effect, but keep, keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we all know those bosses who they think they're so smart. And they I mean, no one, of your, one of your graduates, Michael Scott, who was portrayed by Stephen Carell, was such a guy. That I was mean, that guy. The Dunning Kruger effect was always in effect. And that was what made the office so funny. That's exactly it. So, this idea of like, okay, and imposter syndrome is a real thing. Yeah. We all have it. And it's funny, Jill Stoddard's latest book, which really looks at the imposter syndrome and takes away that 
syndrome word. Yes. Of being like, it's not really a syndrome. We all ex- experience it. It is a part of us. And that kind of humility is a wonderful opportunity and kind of a freeing idea for me, at least, which is like, all right, I don't need to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. And humility allows me to, I think, to learn more at any given time, because like, I don't know, science changes. So let's start listing off the the Stanford prison experiment, the marshmallow test. I mean, right, the, the, there's all these things that are didn't really replicate. And there's other factors involved that they weren't talking about. And yet you still see them written about in books. I'm like, hey, I don't have a PhD. I don't even have a master's. And I know the marshmallow thing isn't real. <laughs> Why are you writing about it? And you're like, okay, because they don't know. And then so, so sometimes the, the geniuses don't know. All of this stuff is great. My friend Nir Ayal says that it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. So <laughs> I understand that a lot of these in principles could also be basically used by con men. That's all true. However, for you as an individual, it should give you a lot of freedom and joy to operate kind of more playfully in the world and give rise to an opportunity to be surprised at any given moment and then incorporate that surprise into whatever your next thing is. That's a great, that's a great way to live. I've studied the neurophysiology of humor and you actually kind of cheekily reference the best way to kill a joke is to overanalyze. It's almost like, I think you've talked about dissecting a frog. Dissecting a frog, yeah. <laughs> But there's an element of surprise within, yeah. and the surprise is often what causes the funny. I want to talk about failure, though, with you, because yeah. so many of us really are terrified of failure, almost as if it's akin to a death of sorts. And one of the things that you very, I believe, accurately and intelligently <laughs> recognizes that failure is merely a cost for anything. And let's talk about that for a second. I would love to hear about some of your favorite stories as they relate to failure, perhaps something funny that yeah. might have happened as a result of like a massive face plant and perhaps something that was more akin to a post-it note that was developed as a result of a failure That's that you've right. seen go the other way. But can you tell us about a really favorite funny failure and yeah. maybe your favorite success that appeared to be a failure? Well, okay. So let's start with this. Like no one is interested in your success story. Like that is the (laughs) most boring. That is like your vacation photos. I don't want to see them. I'm glad you had a good time. I don't care that you did. However, if you had a fiasco, I'm listening. So my wife as a tenured professor of comedy has a sort of a wonderful thing. She talks about kind of a discovery I think she made, which is an improvisation. We do perspective taking, we get the suggestions from the audience. And then we improvise on those and shoot them back to them and hope that is kind of what they were looking for. Stand-up comics do a different thing. If you, especially if you think about a stand-up comic at the beginning of their career, they do what's called perspective giving. They have to teach the audience how to see them. And if you think about your favorite stand-up comics at the beginning of their career, the first five minutes of their act is everything that's wrong with them. Pat Nasr right. is a schlub, Amy Schumer is a slut, John Mulaney is a drunk. <laughs> that right? With that their origin story is their flaw. Relatable. Relatable. Authentic. So my fiascos are the best. It's why I get invited to speak places. So I made an assumption that Jews love the theater. And while I am not Jewish, I have always worked for Jews. And I actually, we talked a little about, we didn't go deep into this, but I did consider converting in college because I was knee deep in Martin Buber and Heschel. And I had a rabbi teacher 
and he knew it was the worst idea in the world. He actually invited me to his synagogue where Jerzy Kaczynski, the novelist, was speaking. He wrote the books Being There and Painted Bird and was a brilliant novelist and fabulist. Turns out he was also a big liar. One of the things he showed me, though, he could control his body temperature. So he had me get a wet towel and we put it on his arm and he made it steam. Oh, my God. This guy was like a magician. That's and again, incredible. At, at, after he died, it was like, did he escape the Nazis and the Holocaust? It doesn't look like he really did. But, you know, it got him into fancy parties in New York and he was a great writer, whatever. So I had this idea as a producer. So I remember actually walking around Second City. I'm like, I should talk to the Jewish performers. I literally had a clipboard and Brad Morris, one of my performers, was like, Kelly, I think it's a bad idea to be rounding up the Jews with your clipboard at Second City. I think it's going to be a <laughs> oh, no. bad look for you. And I'm like, yeah, fair, fair point. So I end up calling the Spurtis Institute of Jewish Learning in Chicago, got a hold of the CEO, a guy, lovely guy named Hal Lewis, huge Second City fan. And this is just a stroke of blood. And he's like, I'd love to work on you with this. I think it's a great idea. So we set up a deal where we would basically try out material at their auditorium for an audience of their folks. And in exchange, we would lead some free workshops for them. So this the show that was titled Jewsical the Musical, <laughs> we tried out some material, didn't go over great. Yep. But we were leading the workshop and we were doing a particular exercise that Hal and I were sort of on the side watching. And this exercise is called Follow the Follower. There's different ways of doing this exercise. In this particular case, a individual from the group was chosen and told secretly they're the leader. And everyone was instructed to walk around and that there was a leader who was unidentified to the rest of them. That person would find someone silently in the group to exchange leadership with, not with words, but it would find some physical, whether it's a nod or eye contact, and then the other person would do it. And we're doing this exercise. And Hal turns to me and goes, you're doing Peter Drucker. And I'm like, who's Peter Drucker? And this led to this amazing, you know, Peter Drucker management theorist, brilliant, Austrian-born, again, fled the Nazis, was one of the earliest people to sort of say these hierarchies that we have in business aren't structured the way that human beings behave or respond. And this is in the 50s, the 40s and 50s. I mean, like he's renowned. Of course, no one followed what he was saying, and they still struggle to. So learning that Drucker was onto this, that there was a tie between that and our work, that someone like Hal, who was a PhD in in learning, the show went nowhere. The show was a bomb. But the bigger thing that happened was we made this sort of intellectual understanding that our work could connect ways that are much deeper than maybe we were even understanding. And that really led to a lot of the work that we talk about in the book and that we've continued working on at different universities and with academic partners. I don't know what was in the water around the University of Chicago in 1959. But what I do know is that Uber was teaching there and Niebuhr was teaching there. It's amazing who Paul Ekman was there at that time. And I remember talking to Ekman because he ran lights for the improv group, the Compass Players. No way. Yeah. So by the Uh, way, Paul Ekman is one of the great studies of the studiers of the human face and it's nuances and nonverbal communication and a host of other things, but amazing. And people might know there was a TV series with Tim Roth called Lie to Me that was based on Ekman's work. And I think my wife had discovered this and I just called Ekman's office and got him on the phone. He's like, oh yeah, no, I know those guys. I mean, it's like, he goes, I can't say that Ugh. we didn't talk about it, but 
you do sort of look at like what so was good. happening in Chicago at that time. Because the University of Chicago, no theater department. They just did it. And also at the University of Chicago, you didn't have to attend classes. If you just passed whatever the final test was or paper, you passed. So a lot of our people who were there didn't go to class. They just like figured out what it was, wrote the thing, and they passed. I mean, it's just a different time. But we are the product of that particular weird outsider genius meshed with the insider genius, right? All of that. And I can't help but sort of believe that some of this manifestation that you're seeing with the work that we do in a caregiving space or with people on the autism spectrum or with corporate training is just the natural sort of place that this was always going to go, which is we really lack in our educational spaces a place to play with each other, to learn, a place of vulnerability, a place that's failing forward, a place that understands that all of us are better than one of us. And we've all heard that phrase, your team is only as good as its weakest member. And what we know at our work is your team is only as good as its ability to compensate for its weakest member, because one of us will be the weakest member at a different point, at a different time, all the time. So that this diversity, when you hear about diversity in teams and people get weird about it, I'm like, do you follow sports? Because you don't want a bunch of power hitters one through nine. Nope. You want a speed guy up top? You want a power guy in the middle? You want someone who can hit it? I mean, it's like every sport's like that. It's like an orchestra is like that. You, you, of course, you want people with the different abilities. That's what makes the beautiful symphony. And why would that be any different inside a business? Gosh, I could not agree more. And I just want to respect your time. And I'm noticing that we're ticking along. Just so taken by that, uh, whether it's Lord of the Rings and somebody's good with arrows, somebody's good with hammer, somebody's good with magic or whether it's baseball or whether it's a corporation we want. We've actually been even seeing that neurodiversity is really important. Yes. And a host of other measures. One of the things I just need to call out before you go is there's often a chasm between what we know and what we do. And Peter Drucker, who is universally heralded even years after his death yeah. as the godfather of management, people still may say they know his work, but maybe if when asked, how much are you actually executing on it? One to 10. If they were to give an honest assessment, it would be a very low number. And yet you did the exact opposite during COVID. You were the perfect example of physician heal thyself because you actually did. During COVID, you shrunk yeah. in 39 employees. You went with the tenets of improv for your own solution. And lo and behold, you're thriving post-COVID. So I just wanted to name that before I get into my final miracle question. And that is this. Kelly Leonard, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one insight or skill that would dramatically improve the lives of the individual as well as perhaps society at large, what would that insight or skill be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps even society at large? All right. It's not from an improv guy, but it relates to an improv thing. Okay. And my friend, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. Oh, love him. Yeah, Scotty's the best. He introduced me to this quote by Irving Yalom. I can't stop thinking about it. And the quote is, sooner or later, you have to give up the hope for a better past. And I think we hold on so hard to the crap that's happened to us. And it's continually getting in our way. And we can't hope our way out of it somehow getting it better. It's not we lost our daughter, Nora, to cancer when she was 16. That was four years ago. 
And Anne and I, it's the worst thing can possibly happen to a parent. The year in which she was sick, we used every improvisational principle we could to bring joy into the hospital room, to try to help her get better, all, all the things. And we were very good at it. We were very good at being the parents of a young girl with cancer. And then when she passed, we didn't know what to do. And we ended up leaning on everything that we knew, which is like, we're going to need our people. There's therapy, there's working out, there's keeping our relationships. There is what can our community do for us? How can we remember her? How can we honor her? All these things we couldn't do was crawl into a space unconnected to other humans. The other humans were going to save us. And that's exactly what happened. And it doesn't mean like it's easy because it isn't and it still isn't. And it doesn't mean that it's not the worst thing. It was the worst thing. And guess what? I mean, we lived this very openly. I kept a curing bridge, sort of online diary during the whole period in the year after she passed. And what turns out that happens when you share your trauma is that suddenly everyone else shares their trauma with you and not in a sort of competitive victimhood sort of way, in a very real way of like, I wish it didn't take this for me to understand that so many human beings are hurting and they don't feel they have the permission to speak it aloud. I don't get it. Don't get it. And it is so true. It is so a thousand percent true. Eight out of 10 people, nine out of 10 people, I don't know what it is. All I know is that people come up to me and share things that happened to them that they don't share with anyone else or hadn't shared with anyone else. And this suffering and silence business is not good. And let's just look at it a bottom line perspective for our business leaders. It's bad for the bottom line. People will not perform as well. People will not invent as well. And this idea of our ability to hold each other up, Nick Epley, who's one of the scientists we worked with at the University of Chicago, this one time said to Ann and I, we were talking, he goes, if you're feeling down and you want to make yourself feel better, do something nice for someone else. Mm -hmm. And literally, it's true. It, it's like this idea of sort of selfless giving and, and gratitude and all those the buzzwords you hear when you can apply them into your day-to-day -day life. It's incredible, but really it relies on your ability to not live in the past or live too far in the future. But again, to sort of stay this idea of being fiercely present in the moment, playing the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in, all those things we talked about, they are just crucial to be able to navigate the worst times, but also to navigate the best times because there's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. It's been true forever. It's, it's almost every religion at some point says something like that, and it just tends to be true. So that's what I think of. Kelly, you've seen part of the darkest side of life. And I believe that's part of why people feel comfortable because you've been there and they know you have. And somehow you find a way to stay present in spite of that. And it's one thing to say, I understand the tenets of improv. It's another thing to make a conscious choice to live them day by day. And that sounds like that's what you've done. And I just want to tip my hat to you. Thank you for the contribution you're making to the world, whether it's through operating on stage, operating in your personal life, giving the knowledge to corporations who could so benefit from this set of skills, you are actually making the world a better place, Kelly. Uh, thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. 
If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.